When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm glad we chose this film today because it makes me question so many of my own beliefs, like how much of my understanding of what it means to be a Chinese American woman came from either things that are reflected in that film that might seem stereotypical, but maybe are culturally true. You know, like so much of the nuances of the mom and daughter relationship and being compared to other people's children. So all of that stuff at that age was super relatable. What I didn't understand at 10 was like the adult part of it. And so as an adult watching it, I'm like, wow, that's just really fucked up. Like they were not healthy relationships and there were no redeeming qualities about anybody. So maybe that's the part that a lot of people didn't like. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is a show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Roman Segal, an Indian American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you for all of us. Hey, Roman. Hey, Sharon. You know what we don't do enough of it anymore? Uh, go out and uh, go out to bars and party like it's 1999. Um, first, no. We are old and got to get up early. And also, I was thinking more like 1993. I'm going to say I have no idea what you're talking about because <laughs> I am hip, I am young, and I am cool. Oh, hey, y'all. I love science fiction podcasts. Why, it's one of our favorite Canadian friends of the pod, Melissa Houghton. Hi, hi, hi. I, I like to think that Melissa is our token. Canadian. Uh, so, so Sharon, I, uh, I'm game. What don't we do enough of anymore? Watch movies. What do you mean? I always go to empty theater Friday morning showings of the latest and greatest superhero film that I'm contractually obligated to see as a card-carrying comic book nerd. Yeah. Movies that aren't those movies, like everyone else. I guess this is where you try to tell me that we should be watching Crazy Rich Asians and Shang-Chi. Those are two of my favorites, but no, because everyone has seen those. How about classic movies that explain the minority experience for all the rest of the majority years? It's like she listens to our podcast. I mean, I have been a guest host. Dude, that, that was one time, and it's because I had to go see Dune in IMAX. It's like he's proving my point, Melissa. <laughs> okay okay so terrible semi-scripted shtick aside i like where your head's at sharon and you know what asian movie i have a major blind spot for everything out of bollywood and hollywood well yes that that is true but i'm actually talking about the original asian american movie i think you can only mean the joyla club 
It's like you're reading my mind. So this week on Modern Minorities, we are going back to the movies and we are watching The Joy Luck Club, the 1993 film adaptation of the 1989 novel of the same name by Amy Tan. The film was an Asian-American drama about the relationships between Chinese-American women and their Chinese immigrant mothers. 50 of the 60 credited acting roles in the film were women. This movie was a first in so many ways. And I've never seen it. Wait, are you sure you're really Asian, Roman? South Asian. But yeah, it's been a major blind spot of mine. And while I'm guessing many Asian-Americans have read or seen it, and a lot of non-Asian-Americans did read or see it back in the day... I'm guessing there are even more folks who have never even heard of it or saw it. Yeah, probably. I read it, loved it, saw it at least three times. The Joyla Club was directed by Wayne Wang and stars Tsai Chin, Kyo Chin, Lisa Liu, Francis Nguyen, Rosalind Chow, Lauren Tom, Tomlin Tamita, and Ming-Na Wen. The film is based on the 1989 novel of the same name by Amy Tan, who co-wrote the screenplay with Ronald Bass. The film was produced by Ronald Bass, Amy Tan, Wayne Wang, Patrick Markey, Weil, and get this, Oliver Stone. The film centers on four older women, all Chinese immigrants living in San Francisco, who meet regularly to play mahjong, eat, and tell stories. Each of these women has an adult Chinese-American daughter. The film reveals the hidden past of the older women and their daughters and how their lives are shaped by the clash of Chinese and American cultures as they strive to understand their family bonds and one another. Wow, Roman, that was a really great dramatic reading of what I can only imagine is the Wikipedia entry. <laughs> He's very good at those, Melissa. We, we, we have a crack research team on modern minorities. <laughs> so you might be asking yourself, why are we talking about this movie versus our normal conversations with minority voices about minority perspectives? Yeah, and part of that is for you, the audience, to hear and understand other minority perspectives with all of our majority ears. But as Sharon said earlier, honestly, we've been busy and we just want to watch a movie. But we want to watch a movie about a specific minority experience with someone not from that minority experience. So every once in a while, we're going to watch a few more movies like this, important works from the past that should be seen and talked about. Upcoming MM movies include The Namesake, Into the Spider-Verse, Mississippi Masala, and In the Mood for Love. Oh, so Cal Penn, Miles Morales, Denzel, of course, and Tony Long? All right, all right. Enough talk. Let's get to it. Joy Luck Club means a lot to me because the first time I had read the book, I must have been in fifth grade. And it was a it was a book that at the time was completely groundbreaking. I had never picked up anything that was about Chinese or Chinese American mothers and daughters. And it really resonated with me. And then when I saw the movie in the 90s and saw it brought to life, it was also just the first time I had seen an all-Asian cast, Chinese-American cast, in that manner. And it was really fascinating because seeing it today, I had slightly different takeaways. So we'll get into those in a second (laughs) or in a few minutes. But I just want to know, as a non-Chinese-American woman, what did you think of it, Melissa? So I remember growing up, I unsurprisingly spent a lot of time at the library and I remember reading the book because I was really looking for stories that were from just different cultural perspectives because I'd gone through, all right, let's read all these canon of English lit and it didn't do anything for me. And so I remember reading the book, but I never got around to seeing the film. 
also, I don't know if this is helpful or, or a bad thing to say, but because it was released around the time I was born. So it kind of was. <laughs> oh, that hurts. I, I hurts know. So I much. Had You're such a baby. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but now, you know, in my infinite adult wisdom, I felt <laughs> it was a good time to return. And by return, I watch it for the first time. So I have thoughts, I have feelings, I have emotions. And I'm ready to chat about them. Yeah, I've heard of it, you know, but it's just, there was so much stuff I was balancing as a kid, and I never got around to it. And, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm genuinely curious, like, I don't even know how I heard of it. But at some point, I knew it was an important work, but it was too late. And nine mm-hmm. times out of 10 back then, a book that you had to read for school, you know, you just want you went to Blockbuster, and you just rented the movie. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I didn't, know a lot of Chinese American people, right? Like to me, Asians were Indian people. So I don't think it was till college that I heard of it. And I just had too much other stuff to do. I, um, but you know, some of other friends of the pod that we've spoken with, like this, this has come up so many times. And I feel like it's really, I don't think this is a provocative thing to say. I think it's actually quite polarizing in the Asian American community. Some love it as like this foundational work. And some are like, ah, this, this represents things I we don't want to talk about. And there there's an article I read after after finishing the film last night. I uh I, I want to understand like not just a review, but like where's the hate, where's the shade coming from? I have my own hypothesis. But there was this like really good article. I think it was in Slate from a couple of years ago and we'll put it in the show notes. But it, the gist of it was, was like it's time to get over your hate of, of the Joy Luck Club and here's why. And the thesis is the the movie and the book were groundbreaking, but because nothing else followed it like no other major works to tell the Asian American experience followed it, it became the stereotype. And that's where the hate came from because, but it's not that movie's fault for that. And I thought that that was a really interesting take because there's a lot of stereotypes and it's a beautiful film, but it's just like, I cringed a lot. watching, yeah, Not just right. because of the, the shoulder pads and the nineties outfits. <laughs> right. I right. love those. <laughs> yeah. I love those. I love the, like the 1950s, all the flashbacks to the moms I'm a sucker for flashbacks. Yeah, yes. like to their girlhoods and their young young womenhoods. What was the so Rem and I would love to get your take because you texted me in the middle of you watching it and I didn't respond on purpose. What was your take of the male female relationships in the, well, the men are trash? Let's yeah. just be clear. Like on, on behalf of all men in the world, yeah. Like I I just want to offer a sincere apology because. <laughs> The men are trash. The only man that is not trash in the whole movie is the dad, June's exactly. dad at the very end. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And seeing some of those conversations between not just like daughters and mothers, but even June and her dad, I could see some of my sister's relationship with uh, with my parents mm-hmm. in it. And I've, I've been part of the, some of those conversations. I've always hid away from those conversations and confrontations with my parents, although I was probably like a wreck as a teenager and a 20 year old to them, but we all turned out fine. But it's just like the tension is palpable, but yeah, the men are trash. The, the men are just trash. And n- never mind the Asian men in, you know, the flashback scenes, they're all trash. Right. Some are very good looking, but they're all trash. But the, the Pakui, the white guy, is like, mm-hmm. I cringed. It's like, our, I'm a pretty cultured guy. And I, I, as a non-Chinese person in Chinese culture, I don't come off that bad. I mm-hmm. hope not. Oh my yeah. gosh. Like the dinner scene with, I don't, I think uh, it wasn't the rich publishing magnate, but it was the other one. Just like the interactions of you don't put your own chopsticks in the middle thing. <laughs> like right. You don't, 
Right. You don't scoop out all the food you share with other people. I just like, how is this a thing? Anyway, yeah, men are trash. I'm sorry. (laughs) Good. I wanted you to say that because I didn't want to be the one to say that. But what I found interesting about that was all of that perpetuates that stereotype, right? So it's like, like there was no healthy, I'm calling it healthy, quote unquote, but there was no, there was no relationship there that really reflected the strength of how an Asian woman could be both vulnerable and and strong. Like in most of those relationships, she was victimized in one way or another, and she or she didn't have any choices. Or that part really got in my craw, and I didn't at the age of ten even notice that. So really, so yeah. that, that almost coded what the right behavior should be. Yeah, and that's why. Like this is so. I'm glad we chose this film today because. It makes me question so many of my own beliefs, like how much of how much of my understanding of what it means to be a Chinese American woman came from either things that are reflected in that film that might seem stereotypical, but maybe are very cultural. Like a lot of that stuff is very culturally true. You know, like I personally resonated with so much of the nuances of the mom and daughter relationship and comparing being compared to other people's children, both overtly like explicitly and implicitly the uh, the competition that you noticed among the girls themselves right because their moms were using them as as showcase pieces to each other so all of that is was very familiar to me because as a child i i totally remembered conversations like that of like my own mom talking about me to her friends and you know me overhearing how my parents my my, my friends parents were talking about them so that stuff at that age was super relatable what I didn't understand at 10 was like the the adult part of it. And so as an adult watching it, I'm like, wow, that's really – like it's just really fucked up. Like there was nothing – Those are not healthy relationships. They were not like, healthy uh, relationships. Any of the romantic relationships, none of them. Oh, no. my God. And there were no redeeming qualities about anybody because – so maybe that's the part that a lot of people didn't like, right? Like I, if, if they were to reshoot it today, I would – expect to see that even though a husband may have been a total asshole and cheating on his wife, there may have been moments where you understood the connection between them and how complicated that may have been. Right. Like that one that one relationship, the I think his name's Rich, the the publish the son of the publishing magnate. Mm-hmm. Like I don't want to say I felt for him or I justified his behaviors, but I could see that the tension and they even spelled that out a little bit when the mother was talking to the daughter of how you behaved in this not, not placing blame on her, but like you never showed your strength in the relationship. Mm, so yeah. therefore, like I could relate to that. Uh, Melissa, I got to ask though, how much of this was quote unquote foreign and how much of it was familiar? You know, like what, what are the, the hooks that got you? Like, yeah, I can see that. I can understand that versus, oh, I didn't, I didn't know that was a thing. Like, were, were there any of those moments for you? Yeah, I think even from the outset, the first hook to me that I think was like culturally agnostic, but resonated with me was just like the loss of motherhood. And even just that imagery of aunties sitting around the table, like Mm, playfully, mm. you know, not roasting each other, but there's just a way that to me felt very Caribbean. That to me felt like something that (laughs) there was like a universality in it. And just like the image of a full home and that whole division, I think immediately I felt drawn in and I didn't feel as though like okay this is immediately a space that's other obviously it isn't you know my culture but I think for me my space is always looking for like what's the commonality or how is this something that feels 
relative and it felt very relative. I think, yeah, there were the nuances in terms of the culture specifically related to like Chinese customs or things that are specific. But overall, I was kind of like, okay, I can see. And also like, unfortunately, I'm like, I just see like the generational trauma as a cross-cultural thread. The immigrant thing. Yeah. 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 So in that way, I was like, I can really see this. And just once again, how that tends to land with women as, you know, the space of always needing to hold strength. Like, I think, you know, that's something in the conversation around like black womanhood that is very consistent and, and like very a similar space. So, yeah, I, f- I feel like so much of the, all the flashbacks were triggering and traumatizing, like the the scene with the baby in the bath. Like, oh, yeah. oh, I lost gosh. my shit. Yeah. I lost my shit when I saw that. But so much what made me so angry about it wasn't the actual moments, but it's just like the systemic stuff around them that mm-hmm. was driving those behaviors. I'm not saying hmm. that the characters as actors in the, the broader world they lived in, it was justified, but it's just, it was the norm. The norm was that a guy could do the shit that they could do. And women were expected to even like the third and the fourth. And I'm not judging the, and maybe I am, I'm judging the system and the culture that allowed it to happen because all those people are just operators in the system, right? right. Like what are the, and I think a lot about, our current moment, I think that's probably why this movie triggered me a little bit is, you know, the current moment we're in feels very dark. And it's, I think 50 years from now, if you were to make a movie about some of the things that are going on, like the thing in Ohio with the 10 year old girl, right? Like right now, mm-hmm. all, all of these things, like you could make a movie and we could be aghast and clench our pearls. Like, how dare they? Like it, but it's the system that systems perpetuate this sort of shit is my lesson. These people are bad. But they're bad actors in a system that's allowing them to be bad actors. Yeah. 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 And I really think that it's also, like, I talk about this with a lot of my friends, and I think it is also that conversation, like, as children of immigrants around acknowledging the trauma that your elders have gone through, but also acknowledging how that manifests for you. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. you're not negating those things or saying that they're mutually exclusive, because, like you said, you know, these are decisions that are made as a result of a horrible system, but also what does that look like when you're living your life or, or seeking the approval of your parents and constantly trying to make your mom proud and how that impacts you moving through the world like we saw with, with a lot of the women in the movie. Yeah. And it was also interesting to see the the mom's perspectives of not feeling like they were good enough for their own daughters because mm-hmm. they weren't familiar with this new system in the U.S., right? So, they they always felt like they were at an advantage. They had sat, they had sacrificed so much for their own kids, and yet they themselves maybe didn't have the tools or weren't as sophisticated or didn't even have the language, literally, to to be a part of the American culture in the same way that their daughters were. Well, and, and the expectations, right? Like some uh, communication style with just the things that the daughters needed to hear and children in general, right. Need to hear from their parents and their parents don't know how to communicate that. And, and some of it is generational, but I think some of it is cultural, right? Because us as kids of immigrants, our cultural norm is what we saw on TV in America and what our friends were doing at school, but that's not how our parents, that's not the norm. Our parents got their parenting guides from right? Yeah. their defaults come from how they were raised in, in the motherland yeah yeah the, the contrasts were i don't know it's some of it hit a little too close to home but and again this, this is where I, I really i'm conflicted about the film because like 
there were a lot of things I didn't like that perpetuated some stereotypes. There were things that rang true. And, and that, that Slate article really talked about how this needed to be the first of many movies, not a bunch of joy, uh, not like a joy luck club cinematic universe. Like I, I really don't care about June and Waverly anymore. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. But right. right. I, I need to, and we see more movies like this now today. Right. I cannot remember the name of the movie, but it was, it's about a Taiwanese dad and son. And it's produced by the guy who does Aziz Ansari show on Netflix. I'm, I'm drawing a blank, but you know, seeing those stories in different versions of the stories with these can't be flawed characters, but they can't be stereotypes at the same time. But if there's only one movie about them, they do become the stereotype. Like the submissiveness of Asian women. I hate that. That's what this movie exacerbates a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the tiger momness and the, the, the cattiness, like there was a lot of cattiness, even though there was a sisterhood, it, mm-hmm. it was interesting. Like, like you, you bring up a good point, Melissa, like it opens up with these women around a table and the family. And that's, you know, the idea of women coming together and bringing people together in community, I think is so universal, but there are all these like little sharp jabs mm-hmm. that they had at each other that seemed, I don't know if I'm just being stereotypical, but it seems so specifically Chinese. Like it really, it, it, it bothered me because I it like part of it was so truthful. Like I had seen, like, you know, I've seen it myself or I've experienced it myself. And yet I was like, oof, they've, they've taken that and they've made that such a, such a pivotal part of their, how they related to each other. Like I, I still have a big question on my mind about how Lindo decided to approach reaching out to the twins in China. Right. Yeah. Like, right. like, that still doesn't sit well with me, even after seeing the film. Like I thought at the end, I would there would be something at the conclusion that would make me feel better about it, but it still left me really with the big question of why did she like why didn't she tell the truth? Why did she lie about that? And she did it with great intentions, you know. And you could tell that at the end, she felt like she had to explain herself or at least finally come come clean with June before she ended up going on the plane to meet her sisters for the first I, I gotta, time. I gotta ask, that was such a weird through line for the yeah. whole story. Yeah. yeah. Like, was that a major part of the book? Because the way the movie played out, you just say, oh, okay, it's going to be like lost. We're going to meet these characters in the present and then we're going to do a flashback to how they got to this moment at this dinner party. Uh, like, it, it was a very weird construct. I'm not going to lie. Like, the Indian person in me was like, okay, tragic story. I believe it. Shit right. like that happened. Right. But I was like... I feel like it's a scam on the other side of the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what I was really setting myself up for something terrible is going to happen with the scam. Right. Yeah. Right. And in the book, I don't remember that being the main part, but I actually don't remember the book. Like after seeing the film again, I don't remember the book, the details mm. of it so much. It did happen in the book though. Like that was part of it, but I feel like, mm. so may, like maybe they adapted it and, you know, had, had it, to put it was something. a very it was a very Hollywood ending. Like the, yes. they're all hugging and embracing. Yeah. The only more Hollywood ending would have been if you ended with the photograph of all the women together. You know, right. in the kitchen, right? Which that's fine. But yeah, the, and it, it was a good through line, maybe because it was a connection from the far past to the modern day and reconnecting. But yeah, it was it was weird. And there there have been some pretty interesting stories. You know, we we interviewed Anjali Anjetti on this podcast, and she has that reunion type story in the South Asian community as well, that's multi-generational. And it's interesting. And, and I guess we long see that connectivity because in reality, we're not going to see that in our real lives. What What's 
Is there a favorite character that you guys had, or is there is there a character that you identified more with than others? What do you think, Melissa? I'm trying to think of if there's anyone who identify. I'm trying to think if there was someone who I inherently felt like I was a rooting for, and I think June, in theory, should be. But I felt like, despite it being her story she faded out a bit. So I'm almost taking the opposite tack to say (laughs) that I wish she was more present and I get that she was there to facilitate other things. But yeah, to go back to the point about the through line, maybe I think now, because if we even go larger into the whole idea of storytelling and, you know, things becoming positioned as a single story and then suffering as a result, like this movie has ended up being that polarizing thing. I just feel as though they had the story of the the twins to be this through line, but I felt like June's voice was a little missing at certain points. And so it's like with each vignette where we went to the story of like a different auntie, I felt very immersed, but I don't know overall if there was someone I felt deeply connected to, but I also think that raises the question of like from a cultural perspective, because I didn't feel as immersed, maybe I felt more like a distant observer. Yeah. No, I'm with you though. Like as someone who is part of the culture, I, Mm. I wanted to root for June because she seemed like she was the main character. Like she should have been the main character. And I guess technically she was, but I didn't feel like I got to know her enough. Like I got to know like a vessel. Yeah. 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 Like I, I, I think the most I saw of her was the last part when she was talking to her dad. And that's when I feel like I saw a little bit more about how lost she felt about herself, you know, like, like Mm -hmm. that became clear at the end. And so it gave a little bit more context into why she seemed like she was almost a ghost of a person in many ways. Like, yeah, I just didn't, I, I didn't feel what she was feeling. Like I couldn't actually tell even what she was feeling. And I hate to see, I hate to say this cause I'm sure, you know, uh, Ming Na Wen, who who played June, is an amazing, amazing actress. But she's in Star Wars now. Yeah, <laughs> like she's been in so many things, and so I don't want to say it could be bad acting, but maybe it was just bad acting. You know, like she was hard to read. Like even she was telling. There was that really sweet moment where she was telling that bedtime story to one of the one of the little girls, like yes. one of her friend's daughters, about the swan feather and all of that stuff. And that was kind of that, you know, that was like a key point of a lot of how things got connected at the end. And I didn't get it. Like, I was like, okay, I know that this is supposed to be a moment, but it wasn't, it just wasn't being communicated in the same way. I agree. And there was that moment where I think the daughter asked like, oh, is it because your mom's dead? Yeah. And you could tell that there was something that was supposed to be evoked or that she was supposed to communicate. And it just yeah, I didn't know what I was supposed to be feeling in that moment. Maybe it was also just a case of maybe the script didn't give her a lot to work with or something, but it was as though June was the main character with no main character energy to quote the Gen Z kids. (laughs) Well, it's like, I, I won't name the modern piece of like modern minority, like pop culture thing that's happening right now, but I sometimes... It's groundbreaking because it's a window into the culture and the relationships. And I think it is culturally authentic, I think. So that's good for me as an outsider to to understand. But I think sometimes it's like 
the, the movie leans too hard on that and other works sometimes lean too hard on that for instance well you got to be a good movie too like you have to be with characters and growth and an arc and the movie was designed as a bunch of vignettes and the other thing i really struggled with with the characters is actually the moms had this but i i feel like the daughters had as characters not as much agency or they didn't mm-hmm. take agency yeah so yeah the movie absolutely passes the bechdel test i think where there are scenes with women where the conversations and the plots don't revolve around men the other the, at the same time there was not a lot of agency with the exception of when the mom the immigrant moms would make their decision back in the back in the day in the motherland mm-hmm. and i got really upset about that as a, as a viewer of the movie as a watcher of film wanting to root for these characters but then upon reflection i'm like well maybe that's the point that that our society has robbed these women of their agency right like it's only in these traumatic situations that they had to take it upon themselves i, I don't know though but it just it made it really hard for me to connect with these women because of that that's um, really because interesting. i was rooting for them i wanted yeah. to root for them mm-hmm. but i couldn't yeah that's an interesting insight because i i totally agree and i felt the same way and you're absolutely right the moments that these women had that full agency or had to make really tough decisions meaning the moms were definitely all like all four of them had such traumatic every, it was just so much trauma right really hard decisions just big sacrifices leaving kids behind losing parents all of it and the daughter the only daughter that i felt did rise to who she really had to be was rose who was the one that was married to the rich publishing mm-hmm. guy. Mm-hmm. And she only got there because her mom pushed her to be get there. Like her mom called her out on the fact that she had become like, you know, a whisper of who she could be. And mm-hmm. she was mm-hmm. trying to, she was just trying so hard to please her husband and that she should really stand her ground and she should know her value and her worth. And even that moment that we saw Rich come back and they had that, you know, groundbreaking discussion that was so short and then all you saw was like a cut to today or whatever it was today at the dinner party where where he like came up and kissed her and was like oh okay like they they somehow made all of that work after a a how you know 10 year long relationship where she she barely had a say in anything or barely shared her opinion and that was a leap too it was like well what what happened between then and now you know and like what was the real transformation Right. And also, does the resolution need to be that it's a continuation of that relationship? Maybe the resolution is that you still come to this discovery and maybe your friends or maybe your relationship transforms. I just, I think also maybe the stories were just a victim as someone who like 90% of the time is going to pick the book over the film anyways. Maybe it was just a victim of having so much to do with all right. of these women that it just simply couldn't dive into it. But also I think, yeah, you're really touching on fundamental absences to really get to the meat of how we get to where we are. Right. I feel yeah. like, I feel like Joy Luck Club, if, if it were to be remade would work better as like a prestige HBO show yes. in the vein mm. of this is us. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I, yeah. I, because I, you want to go deeper, you want to build relationships with these people, and 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 there's look. I actually, where I know I'm an old man is I'm getting a little tired of all of these. Sometimes I actually do prefer a short film. Like I just mm-hmm. need two hours to get in and out with this small story versus 
six hours about Obi-Wan or Kamala Khan, right? Yeah. In all seriousness. It becomes frustrating to me. Are we, why are we stretching it out for subscriptions, right? Versus, no, just tell a really good story. And you can do vignette storytelling. Wes Anderson did it with the French Dispatch. I just, I don't know. I want to, I, I want to like throw some shade at one person specifically. In the movie. <laughs> the, please, please. I don't know the names, but like the accountant husband who was like Mr. 5050. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh my God. Like that guy... Like, does, that was he was like a cartoon character. Is anyone was, actually that bad? <laughs> yeah, he was pretty awful. He was pretty awful. He seemed he did seem like a cartoon character. And where did that end up going? Did they get divorced? Like, I don't even know how that one. Well, ended. he wasn't. So in the the final scenes, you know, yeah. where they're all with their husbands, he wasn't. He was conspicuously not there. Like all the other the white oh. were that, and that was what was interesting. He that was a Chinese husband. But the white right. husbands were still there. Or no, there was the other good-looking Chinese husband. I don't know who he's played by. So two of the girls married Chinese guys or Asian guys. Yeah. And two of the girls married white guys. And in the last scene... Oh, I think, I think she got a new, she got got a new boyfriend. New. Yes. She had a new boyfriend. That was it. That was it. Yeah. So she showed up. She was at the table at the end. And I forget what she was talking about. But it was like they were all lovey-dovey, kissy-kissy. Oh, that was her. Okay. Yeah, that right. was her. That was her. So she 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 kicked Harold to the curb and she got a new man. And the new man was besties with her mom. And so That's they were right. bonding over like, oh, he invited my mom on our trip. And, you know, I hope he doesn't love her more than me. Ha ha ha. Ugh. I mean, that, that's, a pro, that's a pro move. You gotta, you gotta be friends with the in-laws. You, you gotta, it's a pro move. That's awful too. It's awful. Well, Roman, I'm, I'm curious to know. So you live in a house with two, well, one full Chinese American woman and one half Chinese American daughter. Did you see any parallels with how your daughter and your wife relate to how these women were relating to each other? it's i don't know i think it's it's too soon to tell right like i we are at the six going on 16 stage with yeah. daughter. <laughs> lots of big feelings guys mm-hmm. lots of big feelings mm-hmm. and at the risk of putting more stereotypes out there i think those big feelings come from my side of the family <laughs> not my wife's side of the family <laughs> and a lot of the conflict is between the two people who are more alike which is my daughter and me yeah i, I don't I don't see it happening yet. And and the other thing I'll say, I was talking to my wife about it because she's, I believe she's read the book as apparently all card carrying Asian American women must read. Yeah, but it's fundamental, I, it's fundamental read. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even see that relationship with her and her parents. Well, the relationships though I do see, and I sometimes, and this is something I wish the movie had more of because my observation, you know, talking to my wife and knowing my sister very well is the relationship that Asian daughters have with their fathers. And mm. that's, I, you know, the movie I was talking about earlier, I cannot remember the name of it to save my life, but it explores that relationship too, right? Because there is just as much emotion or lack of emotion or communication in the relationship. And uh, that's been more of the observation I've seen in my own life. And then yeah. to, to be clear, there's probably something to be said about mothers and sons too. But yeah, so I, I didn't see a lot of parallels. The, the parallels that I did see were just those cultural, oh, I can't believe you did that. Like literally... Even I know that you don't use your chopsticks <laughs> to get something from the common plate. Right, right. Right. Even I know is that you, even I know that you're not supposed to take a large portion of the dish. Even I know to like allow and counter the self-deprecation. Right. Like yeah. uh, even yeah. I know you don't yeah. add soy sauce. Come right. On. Yeah. Yes. You don't pour soy sauce in someone's dish. Huge but see, do you 
do you know that because you're Asian? No, so there, there's very big differences between our culture, Sharon. You know this. Yeah. No, I know this because I have been have living with manners? a Chinese American woman. I <laughs> I have been trained, right, right. <laughs> um, and I and I have to count. And she has been trained on the things you do in an Indian household, right? Like, yeah. I know which meals I need to not default to my hands with because that's yeah. something our people do not agree on. <laughs> yeah, sticks and hands. Two so very you different. Are, okay, though. so you are agreeing that those are those are things that you've learned. That you've been trained learned to do. It's behaviors, not like learned yeah, behaviors. Yeah. No, but 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 some of the thoughts on the common dish, right? Family style dining. I don't want to say it's exclusively Asian. I'm guessing it's probably Caribbean as well, Melissa, versus everything on your own plate. This is my food, right? And so there's like certain norms around communal dining. Yeah. I think. Yeah. I don't know. I, I'd have to ask a Pakwi Agora, a white friend. <laughs> Because I've definitely invited friends over or like I've been at, I've, I've been at Chinese banquets or other meals with non-Asian or non-Chinese folks. And they, they definitely break those table manners all the time, you know? But, but, it's, and, but it's one thing to break table manners at a big banquet setting. And it's one when you're bringing the boy home. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. And so I <laughs> you, you got to you know, train the partner. So, so the gap, yeah, you're right. The gap is that it was on, it was on the daughter to or the girlfriend, you know, whatever, but to, to train her her boyfriend at the time of what what should be done, what shouldn't be done, instead yeah, of just you, letting you him. No right, you have no yeah. right to be surprised and to You're cringe. Right. Yeah. When you when you bring someone from another culture into a different culture, I, that's I think true. If you love this person and you want to set them up for success, I think so. Because I I've been set up for failure, like in other settings and other relationships. I think. Yeah. Melissa, yeah. how so? How many of those those unspoken or known cultural things? were obvious or not so obvious to you at this point i also don't want this to become a soundbite where i'm like i have asian friends but also (laughs) i did feel inherently i think to that point i couldn't tell really like where the inherent knowledge started and where like just the learned knowledge over the years had come through Mm. but i definitely was like yeah the self-deprecation obvious like why would you say anything other than this is the best thing i've ever eaten in my life right right so just like why are you seasoning or like adding something to a communal dish that's also was a wild maneuver and he add, did he add it to the communal or just on he his did. plate he no, added he, it to he, the, he oh, broke no, the soy sauce and he poured it all over the fit yeah the communal yeah. dish i was horrified and then also yeah just <laughs> i think inherently it's the similar like i think in caribbean culture just in even my own thing where if there's communal serving plate you don't take a large portion until right. everyone's served yeah. Or like even at all, maybe you return after or like, yeah, there's like a lot of things around refusal or just being polite at first and thinking of the collective before you dive in. So I was I knew they were obviously playing it up to be like, this is the absolute worst. But I felt extremely, extremely uncomfortable yeah. throughout that entire portion. I was pretty I, mortified I, for him. Pretty mortified. Yeah. I wonder if some of those were exaggerations <laughs> on point on purpose, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or is it because it's it's one thing like, yeah, when did we learn these things, Melissa, with our quote unquote Asian friends? But by the time you get into an adult, like late 20s, early 30s relationship, like, <laughs> but may, maybe it's a sign of the times, right? We're all we're our generation, like in the living in the 2020s, we've had 30 years to normalize, right? Versus maybe mm-hmm. in the 90s, it wasn't because even the the speech that the the publishing magnate's wife gave, like that speech wouldn't fly today. I have been the recipient of speeches like that, not because I was dating 
the, an heiress to a publishing magnate, but just like, you know, <laughs> oh, man. You, but, but, you know, like thinking about the future or like, mm-hmm. what are people going to say? I'm not racist, but I, some people I know, you know, like, right, right. It's, I don't know, maybe some of it's a sign of the times for where we were in the, in the late 90s or even the early 90s, late 80s when this book was written. But I would yeah. also counter that in that obviously, once again, I think it's, it's a film, it's for a dramatic effect. And we've talked a lot about to what degree these tropes are effective. But I think, I wouldn't say that these conversations have gone. I just feel like they've evolved. So yeah. there's a lot more subtlety or people know like, okay, we don't say X. But maybe right. the entry point to still ask these questions or the underlying, you know, sentiment is there, even if people know better than to ask something on its surface. But I still mm-hmm. feel like I know or like I've been in situations where like these kinds of questions or this type of dynamic still slips through. So it's not as gone as you may think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think they're just in the form of microaggressions, right? So it's if you, if, if you're bringing a Chinese girl home and and your mom is totally against you marrying someone outside of the race and you happen to be a blonde haired blue eyed white guy, it's going to come out from the mother. It it probably comes out in a much more subtle way, but it's probably still there. And and the microaggressions go both ways. Like I, from from the Asian culture to the non Asian person coming into the household, and vice versa. I guess is yeah. Because I. I Absolutely. Look, I've dated non-Asians, non-Indians, and I've brought some of those women home in my younger years. And it was frustrating to watch that. I don't think I would quite say the things that Rich said to his mom, but I've come close sometimes. So I, a question on, you know, my other podcast, Quarantine Comics, where we do this <laughs> later at night and drinking. <laughs> but it's a two-part question I like to ask folks. Well, the first one, though, is the usual question is, would you recommend this to someone? But the real question I have, because of why we brought this movie up for this podcast specifically, and the purpose of, like, modern minorities, I guess, Melissa, Sharon, do you guys think that this movie should be required viewing for people who want to understand a certain minority experience? Such a good question. Ooh. So loaded. Wow. So loaded. Hmm. I I want to say that it's, it, it could be if they produced it again. I think that, I think that, I think that <laughs> Joyla Club. <laughs> yes. I think the Joyla Club as a story is, is very, insightful and quite powerful. And from what I can remember from the book, like I don't think I had all these same feelings from the book because there's so much about reading a book that like your mind fills out, right? Like like, like it's a different type of a thing. If the film though has to be remade before I can truly say that it's required viewing. But what about the book? Should the book be required reading for fifth graders in our public school system? Maybe. I was in fifth grade. I feel... Now that I'm a grown up though, watching watching the film again, I feel like it was a little too mature. So I don't even know. Yeah, I, I was a little shocked that uh, little Sharon. Yeah, <laughs> and Amy Tan came, the author. She came and she spoke to my grade. So it was like my 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 elementary school was like all about it. They, I think it was like a required piece of reading for us. And then the author came and talked to us about it, and it was like a really big deal because, as you guys know, if you've been following, I I. I went to school in Chinatown. So, right. you know, it was like she was she was the person. This was amazing at the time. But now to have 
a 10 year old read about rape and, you know, concubines and, and like opium suicides. I'm like, Oh, I don't, I don't okay, know. Well, what's, what's the right time. <laughs> I've been thinking, cause we talked about this on quarantine comics. We just read gender queer. We'll probably put this in this feed all, you know, what grade is the right grade for people. And you know, when, if, if so it's a two part, if people, if we think people should consume this, yes or no. Right. But like, if yes, when is the right time? Is it a fifth grader? Is it a teenager? Because by the time you get to teenager, like, do you become too blunted to some of the things that might be I know. Yeah. Melissa, what do you think? Do you think this should be required reading or required viewing? I think I balk against the term required. I ah. think maybe recommended. And I think once again, it's just that idea of, I don't think I'd recommend it in a vacuum. I think mm. if it's surrounded by other supplemental materials or perspectives that don't make whoever is engaging with this, look at this as like the single source Mm, of mm. an experience or something that is so representative. I think it's like, it would make sense to revisit or to hopefully see how conversations have evolved or perspectives Mm. have evolved, but not to say like the definitive, you must, I would say no. I wouldn't feel comfortable having someone rely on this. Well, it's interesting because it's like there's summer reading lists, like, and I'm talking about like school kids, right? Summer reading list is a required reading list and you just need to read it all and there might not be any context presented versus during the school year, there is, we're going to talk about it. You know, everyone read two chapters and let's have this conversation. Then half the kids go to Blockbuster and watch the movie. (laughs) I totally did that. But, but then it's like, I, I see it in two places. I see it, I think it has to be read during the school year. I think it should be read, among many other things. But the problem with it is if it's the token Asian book, and then now we're going to go read a book about Indians, like and what we're doing on this podcast, right? And, and this is where I, I, I hesitate, but like, if you were to do like an Asian American studies class, make this the first book and then expand from it, right? Like, yes. I don't, because it was the first movie, and the problem is it was the last movie for a very long time, so... Yeah, if you look at it as something to be viewed on a continuum, like this is where we started and how are we moving away from or challenging or supplementing, then I think it makes sense, but just not not alone. Yeah, I'm with you on that. So one last question. Would you recommend this book to a friend and who would you recommend it to? Hmm. Would I recommend it to a friend... I would say depends on what they were looking for. My initial thought was to say no. Amy Tan is listening and crying right now. No, Amy, please. (laughs) It's not me. It's not you. It's me. (laughs) They don't need, they don't need to read this book in Canada. There's plenty of Asian people. Right, right, right. Exactly. Exactly. I would recommend it. I don't know who I'd recommend it to though, because I feel like, anyone who would be interested has probably already read it. Right. right? So I don't know who I would tell to read it. Like, I don't, I can't think of anyone or even like a subset, a subset of people, mm-hmm. maybe like, you know what, who I don't have a lot of younger, younger friends, but I do teach classes. So I'm, you know, I'm around like undergrads right now. And I would probably recommend to them. Like I, I, I do get the sense that this was, this was a really important book for folks 
in our generation. And now we're learning Melissa's too, because Melissa's way younger than we are, apparently. But I don't <laughs> it's think good to, anyone... It's good to know the kids. It's good to know the kids. <laughs> exactly. But I feel like anyone under the age of 25 has not heard of this book or even thought about it. And it would be... I'd, I'd love to, I would, what I would do is I'd recommend it and I would love to get their feedback after. Cause I'd love to get like someone who's, you know, a Gen Z or to, to, to give us their take on things. And they, they probably just roll their eyes a bunch and make gagging sounds. I don't know. <laughs> well, uh, to our audience, I'd love to know your thoughts. Like, have you seen it? Did you read it? When are you intrigued enough to read it? Like, because this is a journey, you know, I don't think we, we did spoil a lot, but it's fine. <laughs> And if you have read and seen it, like, what do you think about this? Because it's a conflicting movie, as as you can hear from the conversation, but it is illuminating, but it's absolutely not the end all be all. So Melissa, thank you for, you know, going on this journey with us and revisiting a quote unquote classic from the Modern Minorities Library. Yeah, thank you for having me and allowing me to fake my Roger Ebert lifestyle. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we'll we'll find a few others and we'll find a way to get you back. So we're gonna, uh, yeah, we're we're gonna make a career out of this for you, Melissa. <laughs> the token Canadian film critic. I can see the branding already. <laughs> and that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us. Hi, mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Roman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.